0: Hello to you, I do hope you're well. Welcome to this A-level ethics revision video. I'm Ben Wardle and today we are taking a look at natural moral law. So we'll be asking what is natural moral law, what are its applications and of course we'll be looking at the strengths and the weaknesses of this key ethical theory. Now natural moral law traces its history back over two thousand years. And we'll be looking at its origins in the thinking of Aristotle, ancient Greek philosophy, Stoic philosophy. And then we'll be looking at how St. Thomas Aquinas developed this into a very Christian approach to ethics in the 13th century. And we'll be looking at how Aquinas' natural moral law continues to influence Catholic church teaching to this very day. So we'll be looking, as they say, at over two thousand years of human thinking. So there is lots to unpack, lots to consider. And I wanted to start today with these three key terms, and I think they really set the tone for the conversations we'll be having in this revision video. So the first one is telos, and that means purpose or end goal. And of course, this is a key concept from Aristotle's philosophy. And for humans, Aristotle believed that our telos, our purpose is eudaimonia, to achieve a state of supreme happiness and flourishing. And we'll be looking at how Aquinas developed this into his own Christian idea of telos, that we have this purpose to fulfill in terms of our commitment to God, our relationship with God. We'll be looking at Cinderesis, which is innate knowledge of a basic moral principle. And for Aquinas, our Cinderesis is to do good and avoid evil. And it is on this foundation that he develops the primary precepts, which then inspire the secondary precepts. And so that leads me to our third key term, which is precepts. And very simply, a precept is a rule intended to regulate human behavior. And so, as I say, natural moral law is all about those five primary precepts that Aquinas develops, and he says we must always follow. And they then inspire the secondary precepts. And we'll be unpacking and exploring this key concept of having precepts later on in the video. So get excited for that, prepare yourself. I wanted to start today with this quote that I absolutely love from the Roman philosopher Cicero. And I think it really sets the tone and it really gives us an insight into what natural law is all about. So let me read it to you. I absolutely love this. When I was studying the A-level, I literally had this quote on my bedroom wall. That is how much I loved it. And that is how keen I was to use it in my essays on natural moral law. So... Cicero said, there will not be one law at Rome, another at Athens, one now, another later, but one law, both everlasting and unchangeable, will encompass all nations and for all time. And I think this is really powerful because it really encapsulates what natural moral law is all about. It's about saying that there is one universal, absolute, timeless eternal law that all people should follow and so ethics is not subjective it's not about well you know in rome they do this in athens they do this It's about the idea that there is this eternal, discoverable law that all human beings should follow. It is universal, it is eternal, and it is binding upon all people in all places at all times. And so I think this really helps us to start thinking about what natural law is about and what it's trying to achieve. It's about saying that there is one universal law that is discoverable through human reason, that we should all try to follow in all of the things that we do. So yeah, I think that really sets the tone for us. Another quote that gives us a bit of an insight into natural moral law is from Aquinas' Summa Theologica, his key piece of writing. And he said, to the natural law belongs everything to which a man is inclined according to his nature. So this idea that we have this nature, this impulse to do good and avoid evil and that we need to act in accordance with that, that we have this natural law that needs to be discovered, that needs to be known by people and it needs to be followed by people. And then a final quote to start us off from HLA Hart and he said this, there are certain principles of human conduct Awaiting discovery by human reason, with which human law must conform if it is to be valid. Now, this will make sense later on when I talk about the tiers of law, but for now, I want you to focus on that line, awaiting discovery by human reason. It is the idea that we are not supposed to invent our own rules because they suit us or because we think they are going to be practical and helpful. We are discovering a universal eternal law that is binding upon all people at all times. So it's not a case of inventing your own morality. You know, if we think about um, a link to um, religious language and meta ethics, for example, mo- morality is not a matter of personal opinion or preference. There are these eternal laws that must be discovered by us using reason and then followed. And so it really gives us this objective. Absolute approach to morality and to ethics. So Let's take a look at where we're going in today's revision session, shall we? We're going to start by looking at the ancient philosophical influences on Aquinas. Remember, natural moral law does not begin with Aquinas. He makes it a distinctly Christian approach to ethics, and he then inspires the Catholic Church to this very day. But, uh, you know, natural moral law, it predates him. We can trace it all the way back to ancient Greek philosophy, to Aristotle, and also the work of the Stoics and other key thinkers, as I say, who were thinking many many years before Aquinas we then will be looking at Aquinas we will be zooming in on his very christian natural moral law and we'll be looking at the four tiers of law we'll then be looking at cinderesis the primary precepts and then secondary precepts then take a moment to evaluate this theory so to be looking at our strengths and our weaknesses and then i want to take a look today at the doctrine of double effect including applications and at proportionalism as well because they are two key developments on natural moral law which are fantastic to refer to in an essay and indeed the examiner will be expecting you to be aware of when you are discussing natural moral law so Plenty on the way. Make sure you've got the snacks ready. I've got a green tea. I've had to put some sugar in here. Please don't judge. It's got to be done. So let's get started, shall we? Here are some of the key thinkers that we'll be meeting today. And, you know, I just want to take a moment to say when we're studying for A-levels, we need to be rooted in our scholars we need to be name dropping where we can the key thinkers. So make sure you're referring to scholars, make sure you're referring to their writing and to the text that they have written because it really shows the examiner you've got excellent knowledge of the subject you're discussing in your essay. So let's start, shall we, with those ancient philosophical influences. How was Aquinas inspired by earlier philosophers and thinkers? And we know that um, Aquinas was very much inspired by Aristotle on a number of things. For example, you know, his first course argument. He is very interested in the work of Aristotle and he is very keen to incorporate it into Christianity. So how was he inspired by Aristotle on the issue of natural moral law? Well, as I say, he develops a number of his ideas from his reading of Aristotle. Aristotle, an ancient Greek philosopher, believed that the universe and everything within it has a telos. He has the idea of the four causes and everything has that final cause, its purpose, its telos, the thing that it's trying to fulfill, Uh, and that means end or purpose, everything in the universe has a purpose or aim, and the universe as a whole for Aquinas, no, sorry, for Aristotle, excuse me, has the telos to fulfill of the prime mover. Now, the telos of humans is to achieve something that Aristotle called eudaimonia. It's a state of supreme happiness, flourishing, and fulfillment. So it's like fulfilling your potential, becoming the best that you can be. And Aquinas, as they say, was also influenced by Aristotle in the development of his arguments for the existence of God. He was also influenced by a school of thought known as Stoicism, which has actually had a real resurgence in recent years. Now, Stoics viewed the world as an ordered place. Arranged by nature, and this is very important for our understanding of natural moral law. It's the idea that there is a sense of order and that things are ordered by nature, that nature tells us about how we should conduct ourselves about the right thing to do in in the best possible way. So it is an ordered place arranged by nature. Now, the Stoics believe that we have a divine spark within us that enables us to reason and to understand the universe. And that is something unique to humans, that we have this ability to think and we have this ability to reason. And that allows us to work things out based on our observation of nature. And we can then use our reason to establish what is the right way to conduct ourselves and to live our lives. They believed that the path to human happiness and to leading a good life was to accept the natural order of things and to live in accordance with nature's rules. And of course, natural moral law as a name really gives us an indication that this ethical theory is all about living in accordance with the natural order of things and living according to nature's rules. This also makes me think um, about the design argument, the idea that you can know God's existence through observation of nature. In terms of natural moral law, we're gonna be saying, you can know what God wants you to do by using your reason to look at nature, to interpret the world he's created, and to understand from that, what the right way to behave is. It's all about right reason in accordance with nature. And Stoics favoured the rational, the use of reason in the mind over the emotional, which we might traditionally associate with the heart. And this is very important because the use of reason is at the core of natural moral law. So let me just bring all this together and tell you the impact of these ancient philosophical influences on Aquinas. So from Aristotle, he takes the idea of telos, the idea that humans have this final purpose or end that they should strive to fulfill. And of course, Aristotle said that is eudaimonia. He is also inspired by the idea about reason. The idea the world is ordered and rational. We have the capacity, he believed given by God, to understand it. And so we should use right reason. So unlike other animals, we have this unique ability to reason. We should use that. We should be thinking, we should be interpreting, we should be making sense of the world and understanding it using our reason. And that will allow us to understand the the natural moral law. And finally, nature. We have a human nature and it is important that we do what is natural. And so when you hear about homosexuality, for example, being unnatural this is where it comes from the idea that certain things are natural and we need to discover them and we need to do them you need to live in accordance with nature and so this is a really key point as we sort of begin to look at natural moral law that he is inspired by these ideas of telos reason and nature And so he comes in the 13th century to this conclusion, that complete happiness is found in God alone. Aquinas says our telos on earth is human flourishing, which is something he's taken from Aristotle. It's a state of supreme happiness. He believed that following the five primary precepts that we'll talk about in a moment helps to do this. So he believes that by following the five primary precepts, you will be able to flourish because of what they command you to do, because of what they lead you to doing. That ultimately leads to your flourishing. However, he believes that complete happiness is not found just in this lifetime. It's actually found in God, and this is only fully achieved after death when we can achieve what's called the beatific vision, and this remains a key Catholic teaching today the eternal and direct visual perception of God and so I think this is a great quote from a Catholic moral theologian he said full happiness does not reside in wealth or glory or honors or even in knowledge of virtue or in any created reality but in the loving vision of God so really important to note that Aristotle oh, keeps saying the wrong philosopher Do excuse me just keeping you on your toes That Aquinas has been inspired by Aristotle, he's been inspired by uh, the Stoics, but now he has incorporated their thinking, he has incorporated these ideas about a natural moral law into his own Christian theology, into his own Christian beliefs. And so natural moral law now becomes focused on God. And that is really important because then from the 13th century onwards, he incorporates his um, ideas that he's taken from these philosophers, from these ancient philosophical influences. No Charlie D'Amelio here. Um, he's taken those ideas and then he incorporates them into a very religious philosophy. Oh, and just one more point. Natural moral law is centered around the fulfillment of this apparent telos. So it's all about guiding you to God, to fulfilling God's wishes, God's plan, if you like, for the universe and for your life. He therefore has, this is where it gets exciting. We've got a little diagram for you now. No expense spared, as you can see. So he has these four tiers of law. OK, I remember I have said natural moral law is eternal. It is this idea we're not inventing it, we're discovering it. And this is best illustrated by the fact that there is an eternal law at the very top of the triangle. So this for Aquinas is law as known in the mind of God. So we can't actually know this directly because it is his knowledge of right and wrong. And of course, because of God's transcendence, he is completely beyond human understanding and comprehension. And so we can never directly know the eternal law, but it does exist for eternity because it's in the mind of God. However, we do have the ability to reason, so we may be able imperfectly to work out some of its application in human life. And one way we can do that is through the divine law, if the PowerPoint will work. There we go. A few technical difficulties. So the divine law. This is law revealed by God through the commands and teachings through Revelation, For example, in scripture, so the 10 commandments, for example, it includes the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus addresses the people on the mountain and says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, et cetera, and the 10 commandments. These are reasonable laws. Remember, it's all about the use of reason that are revealed by God. And so this is the next tier of law. um, And this is something we can access because it's revealed to us through scripture, because of the prophets um, and because of God becoming incarnate within the world. And so that is our second tier of law. The third tier of law is really significant. It is the natural law. And this is moral thinking that we are all able to do. And we characterize this as right reason in accordance with nature. Now, when I say nature, I'm talking about human nature. I'm also talking about the natural world which God has created and that many Christians believe God can be known through. That idea of natural theology, you know, for example, with Paley's Watchmaker analogy. So this includes a rational reflection on our human nature and considering how to do good and avoid evil. Now, this is Aquinas' cinderesis principle, that we have this innate impulse to do good and avoid evil. Now, I want you to just think about that. Do you think that is actually the case? Has Aquinas got the right foundation here? Do you think people have this innate desire to do good and avoid evil? Or could that be... Wrong. Could he be mistaken there? Um, But that is his belief that we have this innate nature, this impulse to do good and avoid evil, and that we should use right reason in accordance with nature in order to decipher, in order to understand how we are to live a good life and then finally we have the human laws which are at the very bottom of the tiers because they are the customs and practices of a society they are devised by governments and societies so they are human laws and so of course they are going to be at the very bottom of our triangle they should ideally be based on what we reason from natural law now they are only seen as just if based on the divine and natural law and of course Based on the eternal law, but because we can't know that for certain, we have to base our human laws on what we can know for certain, which is the divine law and the natural law. But ultimately, you can see from this hierarchy that in order for a human law to be legitimate, to be something that you follow, it must be derived ultimately from the eternal law, because you are not meant to be creating laws that suit you. You're meant to be discovering what god wants you to do and that is all about using right reason in accordance with nature that is all about turning to divine law reading scripture looking at the commandments looking at the teachings of jesus because it is through natural law and divine law that the eternal law is revealed and it becomes accessible to us in the same way that you know through the incarnation jesus became man so that people could understand god and what he wanted for the world It is through the divine and natural laws that we can understand the eternal law. But the eternal law is unchanging. It's in the mind of God and it is the ultimate law binding upon all people at all times. In all places. And then those tiers below the divine law and natural law are where it's revealed or we use reason to work it out. It is then the human laws that should be created in accordance with the natural law and indeed the divine law. So that ultimately the laws our societies create should be in accordance with the eternal law. And this is really significant because Aquinas writes this in Summer Theologica. He says, man is bound to secular, sorry, to obey secular rules to the extent that the order of justice requires. He says, if they command unjust things, their subjects are not obliged to obey them. So if I just go back to the four tiers of law, what he's saying is you only have to follow what your government is saying, or what society is saying, if what they're saying is just. And the way we know that it's just is if it's in accordance with the natural law, with the divine law. So, for example, um, homosexuality, um, Aquinas would say, well, the human laws that have legalized homosexuality, that have legalized same sex marriage are wrong because he says they are not in accordance with the natural law and the divine law. Um, And so he is saying as a Christian, as a follower of natural moral law, you are only bound to obey those secular rules to a certain extent, as long as they are consistent with those higher tiers on the hierarchy of laws. So, as I say, he has this cinderesis principle, which governs everything he believes humans should do. And this is very simply to do good and avoid evil. Now, some people call this the, pr- the key precept, others know it as the cinderesis principle. But very simply, cinderesis means inborn knowledge of the primary principle of moral action. It is the inner principle directing people towards good and away from evil. Now, you might associate this with the conscience, you might associate this with um, the idea of the sensus divinitatis, that there is something within us There's an inner sense of God there's an inner sense of goodness, there's an inner sense of the divine. And that this is the key inborn knowledge we have of morality, that we should do good and avoid evil. That is why you feel guilt, for example, when you don't do the right thing, because you've got this inner sense that you should do good and avoid evil. And so all other moral rules are taken from this. So this is very much the starting point then for Aquinas's five primary precepts, and then ultimately the secondary precepts, which he believes um, should be followed. Because you should be basing everything on your impulse to do good and avoid evil, because that will ultimately lead you to fulfilling your telos um, as a human being. And so I want to ask you a quick A.O. 2 question, if I may. Is Aquinas right to say that we all have an inborn knowledge or an inner principle, you could say, to do good and avoid evil? Or do you think we might have been taught and trained this after we have been born? So, for example, um, John Locke, the empirical philosopher, said um, that we are all born tabula rasa. We are all born as a blank slate and then we learn everything from people around us you know from our parents from school from society so do you actually think he's right and then also I'm thinking about the problem of evil and suffering you know are we actually born with an impulse to do good and avoid evil? For example, you know what are the implications of original sin and the fall? Those key ideas in Augustine's thinking. How does Aquinas make sense of that? Have we lost our ability to do good and avoid evil as a result of the fall? And you know, Augustine's ideas about how we inherit original sin. So lots of questions to start asking. And I really do recommend that whenever you are considering you know, the key concepts, um, in terms of your AO1, that you've always got in the back of your mind a little AO2 questions list developing where you're actually thinking, is Aquinas right? Does that make sense? Would the other scholars I've studied for this A level agree with him here? So always just be thinking about your evaluation and how you might critique the ideas that you are studying. Okay, so. Here is what Aquinas himself said about the synderesis principle. Again, it's in Summa Theologica, the key text we need to know. He said, this is the first precept of law, that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided. All other precepts of the natural law are based upon this, so that whatever the practical reason naturally apprehends as man's good or evil belongs to the precepts of the natural law as something to be done or avoided. And so his whole moral system is based on saying these are the things you need to do, for example, reproduce and preserve life and educate children order society um, and worship God. And as a result, these are things that need to be avoided. So this principle that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided is the first precept of law. Now, thinking about the idea that natural moral law is binding upon all people at all times, Do you think that every human society is based on the idea that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided? So just think about, you know, all the different religions, all the different cultures. Do you think they do share this idea that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided? Now, again, if I think about metaethics, I'm instantly asking the question of, well, what is the good? How do we discover the good? How do we agree on what is good? And Aquinas will show us in a minute through his primary precepts what he thinks the good is um, but this is just my question to you for now as we think about natural moral law as this absolute unchanging universally binding concept do you think that all people and all societies and all religions and all um, legal systems share this belief that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided? So, again, just be thinking about that. Is Aquinas right? I think he is. You know, I, I think we see it in every culture. It's expressed in different ways. As I say, people have different understandings of what the good might be, but I think we see this universally. Um, and so, I think Aquinas could be right here. He have identified something that is universal, that does seem eternal, that we have this desire to do good. But then, of course, I could also think, but well, what about all the very selfish people? You know, what what about all those who cause harm, and they cause harm and take pleasure from doing so? And um, so, yeah, obviously, with ethics, there were so many questions to ask. But just again, something else to start thinking about. So. Here is another little graph for you. Don't get too excited. Um, We have the Cinderesis principle there, that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided. Now, this then feeds into the primary precepts. And these are five primary precepts that Aquinas believes every person has a duty to do. And that by doing them, you will fulfil your telos, which is the ultimate end goal of life. It's the whole point of being here to fulfill your telos. Those five primary precepts that we're going to look at in just a moment, then lead to secondary precepts. Secondary precepts are um, created by different cultures, by different people, based on the primary precepts. So they are, as I say, based on the primary precepts, those five, and they are then the more specific rules and teachings that you then find within societies, that you find then within cultures. And in countries so we have got the Cinderesis principle that universal absolute principle to do good and avoid evil we've then got the five primary precepts which are our duty to fulfill they are fixed. They are unchanging. They are eternal. They are universally binding. They are inflexible. But then we've got the secondary precepts, which are a little bit more flexible. They're open to interpretation. One country might have one secondary precept. Another culture might have a different secondary precept. And they, you know, as you can see, they all link together. We start with the cinderesis principle. We have our five primary precepts. And then we branch out to having these secondary precepts. And again, just a reminder of that quote, man is bound to obey secular rules to the extent that the order of justice requires. If they command unjust things, their subjects are not obliged to obey them. And again, this is about you having the autonomy to use your own reason. You have this God given reason. So you shouldn't just blindly follow the rules you've been given. You should use your reason to think, is that in accordance with the natural law? Is that in accordance with justice? Um, and so Aquinas really empowering the individual to think for themselves, to use their reason to actually decide, is this rule I've been told to follow right? Yes, no, and use your reason, be empowered to use your reason in order to make that assessment and that judgment. So, Cinderice's principle, innate, it is within you, as you know. The primary precepts are universally binding, whereas the secondary precepts may be culturally relative. Let's take a look then, shall we, at those five primary precepts. And as I say, Aquinas believed that when we reflect on our telos and understand the synderesis rule, there are five primary precepts that emerge. I have to emphasize this again. These precepts are not created, they are discovered, they emerge. Yeah. Remember, natural moral law is not about inventing the law, it's about discovering an eternal law, which is manifest through the divine law and the natural law. And then we have our human laws. So these five primary precepts, again, they are not created, they are discovered. And so that leads us to think, well, is that actually what we discover? Is that actually right as a primary precept? And so this table here is part of the PowerPoint you can get by clicking on the description box below. And it just helps us to shape our thinking in terms of what actually is the precepts, what secondary precepts are derived from it, and then actually, is Aquinas right to make this one of our primary precepts? Is this precept something that we all have a duty to do? If I use my reason, my right reason in accordance with nature, will I come to the conclusion that that precept must be followed by everybody? And so that's what I want you to start thinking about, start using your reason to um, just reflect on as we go through all five. So. Shall we get started? Number one is the preservation of life. And Aquinas argued that uh, we are to preserve life. It is evident that life is important, both our own and that of others. It is natural, therefore, and reasonable, key word, for every person to be concerned with preserving its own being and preserving human life. This is, of course, expressed in the divine law, in the Ten Commandments, do not kill, and then in human laws against taking life. I think in every single country, under every single legal system, there are rules, aren't there, against killing people. Um, and this, of course, influences Catholic teaching on abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment and suicide. So preservation of life, this applies to human life, because um, human life has, um Is the sanctity of life, it is sacred, and it is the number one primary precept that we are to preserve life. So again, these are the key things that Aquinas believes humans are made for. By fulfilling these precepts, he says we are fulfilling our telos. And I want you to think, do you agree with this? If you don't agree with this, I would be a bit worried, to be honest. <laughs> I think this is one that everyone can get on board with. As I say, you don't need to believe in God in order to believe you need to preserve life. Although, of course, when it comes to euthanasia, for example, you might say "Well, will preserve life at what cost, you know? Is there a point when the quality of life needs to be taken into account when it comes to preserving life? Um, So if you are applying this to euthanasia, that might be something to consider, you know, the preservation of life at what cost? Um, You could also think as well about, you know, should you um, assassinate a terrorist? um attacker before they're able to detonate their bomb or cause widespread harm you know so are there exceptions to this principle Aquinas would say no because it is you know a primary precept although we will be looking at his idea of the doctrine of double effect for example in the case of self-defense a little bit later on so you know prepare yourself for that but yes that is your first primary precept it is the preservation of life okay number two then is reproduction now this is really interesting because this completely shapes the catholic church's teachings on sexual ethics it's why the church opposes homosexuality it's why the church says contraception is intrinsically evil it is why the church says that the entire purpose of sex is procreation and so reproduction is the idea that we have this precept, we have this duty to reproduce. Interestingly, I think this is very consistent with science. If you look at what science tells us, we are told that evolutionary speaking, our purpose is to survive and reproduce in order for our species to continue. So actually, Aquinas might be very much consistent with science here. But it's the idea that it is rational to ensure that life continues. And this is the main purpose, telos of sex, that is the point of sex. Now, of course, you might have different beliefs about the purpose of sex. Is it to express love? Is it for pleasure, for example? But for um, the Catholic Church, sex is for procreation. That is the purpose. It is consistent with that scientific belief that we should survive and reproduce. um, And it influences, as they say, Catholic teaching on the purpose of sex contraception, why masturbation is wrong, um and homosexual acts. Yeah. Aquinas goes into some detail about why um masturbation is wrong because the emission of semen, the emission of semen, excuse me, uh, should only take place when there is potential for life to be created. That is how important reproduction is and how closely it is linked to sex acts in Catholic moral thinking. It is, of course, seen in the divine law, where we see in Genesis, you should be fruitful and multiply. Um, and obviously, we see it in teachings against homosexual acts, for example, in the letters of St. Paul or in Leviticus. In the past, it has been seen as a duty to reproduce within society, you know, it has been seen as an expectation that you will marry and have children of your own. Um, of course, though, you could say, as a little evaluation point, that in the modern world, where we're dealing with overpopulation, you know, and, you know, climate change, for example, is it responsible to have this um, to reproduce? Do we actually need people to stop reproducing for a second, because otherwise, you know it's it's going to cause more harm than good think about china's one child policy that they implemented for a time for example so we could say well actually is this still an absolute duty you know um and of course we can talk about different ways of reproducing now so through adoption for example IVF. So could that mean that homosexuality is not actually wrong because you can still reproduce, just not biologically? For Aquinas, the answer would have been no, because he links the sex act to this particular purpose. The talos of the sex act is reproduction. Um, However... I would then argue, well, what about people who are infertile through no fault of their own, you know, should they then not be allowed to have sex because they have the knowledge that they cannot reproduce from that act so again lots of questions that i'm throwing at you Um, I hope maybe that's making you start to think about this um, precept in terms of the influence that it's had and then thinking about its relevance today. But yeah, really key for understanding Catholic teaching on sexual ethics. Okay, our third one then, our third primary precept is the education of children. Um, And so humans are intellectual creatures and it is natural for us to learn. In the world today, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child affirms that every child has the right to an education so we've got UN endorsement there of Aquinas's primary precept there you go Aquinas Saint Paul writes in the bible so again the divine law that parents should bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord indeed Proverbs 22 says train up a child in the way he should go whilst the catechism of the church describes the home as the first school of children life of Christian life excuse me I need more green tea clearly so that is the third primary precept now he's obviously talking about education in terms of life skills i would assume but then he's also talking specifically about teaching them about god and the religion which is of course how christianity has become such a large powerful religion because its followers are commanded to reproduce and then educate their children within the faith interestingly richard dawkins the key atheist says it is a form of child abuse to teach your child to believe in a religion because you are teaching them to believe in something, you are brainwashing them, he would say, um, for which there is no evidence whatsoever. He sees it as indoctrination. But for Aquinas, there is a duty to educate children. As I say, talking of your AO2, I think everyone can agree that is a duty to educate your children, isn't there? Of course, but should it be to educate them about God as well? Or should you let them discover that or make that decision for themselves at a later date, for example? Um, but yeah, educating children, our third primary precept. How about number four then? Number four, again, I don't think anyone's going to argue with this because we don't want anarchy in the world. It is ordering society. It's the idea we're social beings, and it is good to live in an ordered society where it is possible to fulfill our purpose, to fulfill our telos. So society should be structured and set up in a way that we are able to fulfill our telos, that we are able to be free from as much harm as possible and we can experience as much fulfillment as possible Um, and so every society as they say has certain rules to be followed with laws in place to regulate human behavior to bring about law and order all people in the world are subject to rules that must be followed and so again this shows that ordering society is a universal thing and so of course with these five primary precepts we are always thinking is it universal? Is it binding upon all people? Can we find evidence of this? Um, we can also look at the natural world. We can say we do see order in the natural world. The food chain, for example. You know, um, I'm no zoologist, as you know, but I'm thinking of, you know, lions. You know, what are they called? Is it like a pride of lions? And then there's an important main one. And then the others. As I say, I'm no zoologist. I do apologise. I'm just trying to think, you know, do we see this in the natural world? Do cows have a leader, I don't know, the chickens, who knows, but the point is <laughs> we see order in every single society, don't we? There's always a hierarchy, there's always a set of rules. Um, and so this clearly is important in order for us to survive. And it, you know, it's a great chance to think, well, what is the point of that? Why do we have these laws? Why do we need order? And Aquinas is saying is so it's we can fulfill our purpose so that we have the opportunity to fulfill our telos and that obviously life is protected and that we can live our lives well, hopefully, touch wood. So yes, that is your fourth primary precept. I think, do you know what? All four of these so far, I don't think we can really question. I think we do see them universally. And I think the overwhelming majority of people do agree with them universally. The one that I think is a little bit more interesting and it's a great chance for some AO 2 is this one, worshiping God. Do you think that worshipping God is something that we all naturally have the desire to do? Do you think that this is something binding upon all people at all times? If you look at the UK today, for example, does every single person worship God? No, they do not. And so actually we could say, is this precept outdated? Is Aquinas correct about this? Do we see animals doing this, for example? So lots, you know, lots of AO2 opportunities when it comes to this precept, worshipping God. So the idea of this one is that we should recognise God as the source of life and live in a way that pleases him. The idea that, you know, God is your ultimate destination, achieving the beatific vision. You've been created by God for a purpose and that, you know, that you should put God and Jesus at the center of your life as a Christian. Christians therefore pray, read scripture, attend church, and try to put into practice the teachings given by Jesus Christ, who they understand to be the incarnation of God. Globally, we can say billions of people do worship God every single day. We can also say previous societies have worshipped gods, you know, so the ancient Greeks believed in gods, for example, and societies before that did believe in the divine in some way. However, richard dawkins again our atheist would say well hang on we actually need to outgrow belief in god it's not something that's instinctive you know it's something that's very childish and we need to grow out of it because we now have scientific explanations and we now have a scientific understanding of the world freud saw the worship of god as um a neurosis that is based on our um our fears and our subconscious fears from childhood Marx said religion is the opium of the people, you know, that the powerful forced people to worship God and believe in God in order to keep them oppressed. He said religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, didn't he? So actually, there's a lot to think about with this primary precept. Is this something that everybody using their reason is going to say we need to do? I don't think it is. So, you know, as I've put there at the bottom, do you think Aquinas is correct? Do you agree with this being one of the five primary precepts that binds all people eternally, unchangeably, absolutely, at all times? So, how do these all apply? What are the consequences of these five primary precepts for some of the many moral issues that we see and encounter in our world today? Well, Here's a couple of examples. Homosexual acts, for example, are seen as wrong um, by the Catholic Church because it goes against the idea of reproduction. It it violates the purpose of sex as being procreation. Masturbation, again, it violates reproduction. Um, Aquinas said every emission of semen from which reproduction cannot follow is contrary to the human good. And if it is, is done voluntarily, then it is a sin. So it's sinful because it goes against the purpose of sex. Contraception, again, it violates reproduction. The purpose of sex acts is procreation. We see this in the Catholic Church's encyclical Humanae Vitae, which said contraception is intrinsically evil (laughs) as it closes the sex act to the transmission of life abortion then it goes against a couple of them it goes against reproduction it goes against preservation of life catholics believe life begins at conception but also we could say it violates worshipping god because it goes against the idea that god is sovereign over life and that life is a gift from god you're interfering in god's plan There samuel from the bible says god gives death and brings death, sorry, and gives life, excuse me. Euthanasia, it violates the preservation of life, of course, your 10 commandments, your divine law. And we could say as well, it it violates worshiping God. God is sovereign over life. Um, And so Catholics believe in palliative care. For example in the case of euthanasia because Pope John Paul II said euthanasia is a grave violation against the law of God and that really clearly links natural moral law to uh, euthanasia and why it's seen as wrong because it's seen as going against the law of God linked in here with euthanasia. Adultery, it goes against the ordering of society because of course you're breaking vows, you're breaking promises, it leads to a breakdown of relationships, it leads to instability, broken Homes, for example distrust disharmony anger upset um, it, it also goes against the ten commandments do not commit adultery so the divine law has been very clear why it's wrong and you're going against that. Um, and it also we could say it goes against worshiping God because adultery is where you're having an affair after being married. Well, marriage as we know is so important for Christians. It's not just a contract between two people. It is a sacred covenant where you make vows before God and he joins you together as one flesh. So you're breaking those vows that you've made before God. So you're going against his plan for you and the vows you've made to him. Um, It's a bit like sticking your middle finger up at him, basically, if I may put it in those terms. Murder, then, it goes against the preservation of life. To not kill, of course, is then your divine law on that. Um, And then worshipping God, yeah, because of the sanctity of life idea. All life is sacred and God-given. So, again, murdering God's creation. You're not worshipping God in the idea of God being found in each person if you're committing murder. So just a couple of examples for you there. I just want to quickly now share with you a modern development of natural moral law. One of our key criticisms is that it's gonna be a bit outdated, for example, on the issue of sexual ethics, but a modern development that is very significant because it doesn't require belief in God, So this could be your brilliant defense of natural moral law. This could be your rebuttal to a criticism that it's outdated or that it only works for people who believe in God. And it's from John Finnis, who is an Australian legal philosopher, jurist and scholar. And he wrote a book called Natural Law and um, Natural Rights. Interesting that he's a philosopher and a jurist because, you know, he's very interested in law and how we create laws in the present day. So he developed Aquinas' natural law, an approach based on the idea that humans have a purpose and that certain activities help us fulfill our purpose. Now, by the way, we will be talking about existentialism as a criticism. Existentialism is a um, philosophy where you believe life doesn't have purpose, the universe doesn't have a purpose, that existence precedes essence, that we don't have a purpose, we have to create our own. Um, But for Finis, he does agree with Aquinas that life does Have an innate purpose. Finnis argues that there are certain basic goods that are self evident. So again, the idea that the natural moral law is evident to us. It emerges. We don't invent it. It emerges. It is evident. It is discoverable. Um, So for him, it is better for humans to live in a civilized society with laws that uphold the basic goods, because that means we're then able to flourish. Ethics is about finding a way to ensure humans can flourish, working together for the common good. Again, the idea of us all being one society, bound by certain um, precepts, for example, because it's that idea, isn't it, that this is universally binding, it's binding upon all people at all times, as Cicero said. His development does not depend on belief in God. Now, this is important if you're talking about whether natural moral law is still relevant, or if it's relevant to those who don't believe in God. He proposed this list of seven primary or basic goods in life, and they are life itself, preservation of life, basically, knowledge, play, aesthetic experience, sociability, practical reasonableness, and spirituality. So he again, he's built upon these ideas that stretch back thousands of years, literally over 2000 years. He's then built upon Aquinas' ideas, and he's arrived at this 20th, 21st century approach to natural moral law. So it's still based on this idea that we have a purpose, and that there are certain basic goods that are self-evident. But as you will notice, it doesn't necessarily Depend on belief in God. So you could say this is a positive development that defends natural moral law or that shows it's still relevant or that it can be relevant even outside of a Christian context. And it also reminds us of the emphasis that natural moral law places on the use of reason, because Finnis proposes nine requirements of practical reason. These are the nine things that you need to do in order to reason properly. He said view life as a whole, prioritize certain goods over others, basic goods apply equally to all, do not become obsessed with a particular project, use effort to improve, plan your actions to do the most good, never harm a basic good, foster common good in the community and act in your own conscience and authority. And I think that reflects very well on Aquinas's point about not having to obey secular rules that are not just. Because in natural moral law, you are empowered as an individual to use your reason. For Aquinas, your God-given reason. This idea that humans should have autonomy to um, you know, work things out. Remember, they're not creating the rules, they're discovering them. Um, But again, this emphasis on reason is central to natural moral law, both Aquinas' original and then Phineas' development. So what we are now going to do is take a look at the strengths and the weaknesses of natural moral law. So this is all about, of course, your AO2. We're going to be looking at what works with this theory, why it might be seen as successful and why people might think it remains relevant today. But then we'll also be looking at the problems with it. What are the weaknesses? What are the criticisms? What are the issues with its continued application in the 21st century? So let's get our AO2 mindsets on. Let's start critiquing. Let's start questioning. And let's start with the strengths, shall we? So, number one, John Waters is a very big advocate for natural moral law because of the fact it offers a foundational, universal and absolute approach to ethics. So, he argues that natural moral law offers, as I say, a foundational, universal and absolute approach to ethics. And I think that really reflects the quote we started with from Cicero, that it is of universal application, it is unchanging and everlasting, it is one eternal and unchangeable law, and I think human beings like that because we like consistency, we like clarity, we like to know where we stand, we like to know that we're all on the same page, so we can see it as very helpful for the world, if I can put it like that, very helpful for society, because there is no ambiguity. Everybody is very clear about what the right thing to do is. And so you can't get confused, if you like, it provides an objective foundation for ethics, giving people a very clear and universally applicable sense of right and wrong. Now, if it works, It is universal, but it's something that we all agree with. And that's important because it's not being enforced upon us. We are able to use our own reason to discover it. And that's important because it's the idea that we all come to a collective agreement about right and wrong. So there shouldn't in theory be disputes and arguments because we should all be able to use our reason to come to the same conclusion about how conduct should take place about ethics. Obviously, we know in practice that is not the case, but it is the idea that it does not go out of date. It can be used by everybody. And if everybody uses right reason in accordance with nature, they will discover it for themselves. And so it's not even like you've got to have a dictator imposing it upon you. Yeah, it is you discovering it for yourself and committing to the common good because of that cinderesis principle to do good and avoid evil. Now, of course, as we know from our study of metaethics, this is not the case, is it? You know, we have so many different ideas about what is good, what is right, what is wrong, Um, and we can see it for ourselves by looking at the world around us. People do believe different things are right and wrong, but you know, as I say, in theory, if it was in a textbook, you know, it, it, it seems to be a very good thing, because we should all be able to use our reason to come to the same conclusion, because we are all discovering the same eternal law manifesting in the divine law and the um, natural law. This is reflected, I think, really interestingly in the UN Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. Obviously created following the World War, and it is an example the UN Declaration of Human Rights of one of these universally binding codes of conduct. This has been very helpful as it sets a global standard. So it shows us that natural moral law can be helpful because it sets a global standard it is foundational, it is universal, you know, it is agreeable for all people. Um, And it shows you that in the 21st century, especially in what we call the postmodernist world, people value having an unchanging and absolute source of moral truth. Clear, common rules, Create stability and certainty and I think we really do all need some of those don't we you know you could say there are universal facts from science that we all believe in such as the law of gravity you know so why should that not be the case in ethics as well that we all agree certain moral standards that you know we must all feel an obligation to um follow in order to fulfill our potential and our telos um And so you can see that as a real strength, that it provides that consistency, that certainty, that clarity. It is absolute. It's concrete. It's unchanging. We all know where we stand. And crucially, as I say, we are all involved in it because we are all using our reason to reach that conclusion. Of course, your counter argument here is that people have different ideas about what the good is and they actually argue over, um, you know, which of those precepts might be right. But as a strength from waters, it's um, foundational, universal, and absolute, which reflects what Cicero originally said, and it means it's very relevant today, it's very helpful today, and it offers the promise of what Hans Kung, for example, called a um, global ethic that we can all agree with, and that will lead to harmony and happiness and flourishing in society. Okay. Another strength then, obviously John Finnis, who we just spoke about. His modern development shows it remains relevant and applicable to contemporary ethical decision making. So we can say, or he would say, sorry, the rationale of natural moral law is to establish what is really good for human persons. He focuses on human flourishing and goodness. These are universally appreciated. You know, our key founding father of ancient philosophy, Aristotle, introduced us to that idea of eudaimonia. It is something people still believe in today if you look at life coaches for example if you look at modern psychology it is all about this idea of fulfilling your potential Maslow's hierarchy of needs for example the key um, approach in business to personal motivation is that we all want to achieve self-actualization that is the top of his hierarchy of needs and so it shows us that this concept which is you know supported by thousands of years of weight behind it is still relevant today. It's still valued today and it's seen as very important by psychologists in the modern world. So it is universally appreciated as a goal, as a focus point. Uh, So as I say, Finnis published his book in 1980 and it establishes those seven basic goods that theoretical reason tells us are true. And again, they should be self-evident to everybody. This is at the same time a strength and a weakness, because if they were, that would be a great thing because we would all voluntarily follow the natural moral law. We wouldn't need to just be following laws imposed upon us because we've been empowered to discover it for ourselves. But as I say, it's at the same time a weakness because we can see in practice, this is not how it works. Because if we all use our reason, we all come to different conclusions. I might think there's nothing wrong with a loving same-sex relationship relationship, whereas somebody else may think that there is. And so it appears that when you say to people, use your own reason, we end up with lots of different results. Um, So does it work in practice is going to be a rebuttal point. Um, And it says that objective knowledge of morality is possible and we can define justice in terms of the requirements to promote the common good. So, again, this modern development, which doesn't necessarily require God, can be seen as a real strength because it shows this theory, which is ultimately over 2000 years old, remains relevant today. And then another really, really strong strength is that it lays the foundation for human rights. Now, while some contemporary thinkers, such as Jeremy Bentham, although he's not that contemporary as they bless him, Um, you know, the father of utilitarian thinking, he said that human rights are nonsense on stilts. Um, I would say that in the modern world, people value human rights. You know, it's seen as very important that everybody has certain basic rights. Um, Natural moral law asserts that human beings have universal rights, values, and indeed responsibilities. Um, These rights, values, and responsibilities are not to be created, but discovered. Again, this is such an important point with natural moral law. If you take nothing else away from this video, please may it be this. Natural moral law is not about inventing universal laws. It is about discovering an eternal law. It is about a discovery. It is about an emergence rather than an invention and a lot of the things we see in the modern world are about inventing things creating a purpose creating rules you know etc etc this is about the idea that the law already exists in the mind of god for example but then you discover it so it's a discovery rather than an invention and that's very important because it emphasizes the eternal absolute unchanging nature of this theory Um, It therefore, I love this word transcends. So it goes above politics, governments and societies. And so everybody's bound by it because everyone is under it. You never get somebody who can rip it up and say I'm more important than that, or I don't like that anymore. I don't have to follow that. It's binding upon everybody because it transcends everybody and everything because it is eternal, it's in the mind of God rather than being invented by men and women. It therefore lays the foundation for international human rights, such as the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And so governments can't take people's rights away. You know, we can't see certain people as undeserving. It is binding. It is absolutely and objectively binding. And so nobody, as I say, can take those rights away undermine this key idea of a universal sense of goodness, that every single person has these rights. Um, Corrupt dictators, there's my example, cannot erode them. And remember, Aquinas says to only follow a law if it is consistent with natural moral law. So although St. Paul said in the Bible, submit to the governing authorities, this again emphasizes the autonomy of you as an individual to use your reason. Now Aquinas again seems to be assuming we'll all use our reason to reach the same conclusion and that isn't the case but the principle remains the same. He's still empowering the individual saying that they can use their own reason to work this out and if you think about how oppressive the church has been in the past for example this is actually quite significant in saying to the individual you use your reason you work it out although Aquinas is assuming you'll reach the same conclusion as he is. Um, But yeah, it lays the foundation for human rights, undoubtedly seen as a good thing in the world today, where we do recognise the worth and value of all human lives. However, we do need to know a few weaknesses. So one of the best ones, I think, is that it assumes the universe has a purpose. Remember, we started today, it feels like 10 hours ago, (laughs) we started today by talking about Aristotle. Um, And his idea of telos and how that influenced Aquinas. So natural moral law is based on the idea of telos, isn't it? The idea the universe has a purpose. And Aquinas then took Aristotle's work and said that purpose is God-given. However, existentialist philosophers such as Jean-Paul Sartre, love saying his name, makes me think of GCSE French all over again, argue that existence precedes essence. Love that quote, really easy to remember, really great to drop in your exam. All that it means, very, very simply, guys, is that you exist before you have purpose. Existence precedes essence. So the world, your life has no purpose. You have to create a purpose for yourself. You have to invent a reason. You have to find something to do. You have to find a cause. You have to find a job. You have to find a hobby, for example. It's not to be discovered, as natural moral law says, It is to be invented by you. Um, And so, again, linking this into our metaethics, always making those synoptic links, there is no objective morality. Uh, So in ethics, emotivism is the view that moral statements are expressions of emotion, um, slash human I've written there, I don't know why I've written that. Oh, dear. Um, Morality is subjective to the individual's perspective, perspective, excuse me, and preferences. So you could say natural moral law is flawed because it depends on belief that there is a purpose behind existence. This is not shared by all people, for example, existentialist philosophers. So we aren't discovering a law, we're inventing it. Yeah, there is no telos to fulfill. We have to create our own. So, you know, the existentialists throw in a little bit of a spanner in the works there. Another one, really important one, is that it depends on belief in God. You know, Aquinas' theory is built upon the foundation of theism. It assumes the existence of God. The idea there is an eternal law that exists in the mind of God depends on the fact that there is a God in the first place. If there is no God whose mind this law doesn't exist in, then what, what, what are the implications for the other tears? First of all, the divine law is out the window because you don't need scripture because you don't believe in God. But then you've also then got your natural law and your human laws. So if that eternal law is taken away, then all of those strengths we spoke about in terms of it being absolute, universal and unchanging are undermined. Another problem is that worship of God is one of the five primary precepts. And we could say, but actually, that is not something that all people do. That is not something that emerges when you use your reason that you need to do. If you've not been brought up in a religious country, for example, or culture, are you going to suddenly come to the conclusion, I need to start worshipping God? Is the worship of God something that we're taught to do by, you know, the school we've been sent to, by our parents, you know, by the church we've attended, etc. And so many people in the modern world no longer believe in the existence of God. Therefore, they would not agree that the worship of God is the primary precept. Atheists and this is interesting, would argue that the use of reason actually leads you to question belief in God. Yeah. The idea the Age of Enlightenment, for example, um, when Kant said, you know, you should have the courage to use your own understanding. That actually, when you say to people, use your own mind, think about it for yourself. They go, there's no God. Karl Marx again. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. It is the opium of the people. You know, when you empower people to use their own reasoning, do they not actually come to the conclusion God doesn't exist? So that's a really interesting point to make. Um, but just to bring it back to the key criticism we're making here, it depends on belief in God. In order for it to be binding upon you, um, it has it, got to depend on belief in God that is underpinning this that is the foundation for this remember that eternal law associated with God sorry guys just having a quick back massage now just gonna have to reposition the cushions (laughs) I'll be lying down in a minute um so the fact that many people don't worship God and actually think that you can prove God doesn't exist um means natural law is not binding upon all people at all times I'm also thinking of John Stuart Mill, who said that nature kills, that actually when you look at nature, you don't see what you need to do, you see what you don't want to do, because nature is actually very cruel, that nature commits all the crimes for which men would be executed. And so morality is actually a revolution against nature, rather than, you know, we should want to live in accordance with nature. If you look at the natural world, it's very cruel. You know, we've all seen the David Attenborough documentary. Do you know what I mean? We're all still in therapy after seeing the poor innocent animals being ravaged by the tigers. So so do you know what I mean? So actually, if you don't believe in God, and many people don't, is natural moral law going to be for you? This is the key question we've got to ask. Another one, another really good point is that it's too rigid and impractical. So obviously Cicero said there will be one law eternal, binding upon all people at all times. Now, when he said that, he was living in a very different world, in a very different context to the world in which we live today, wasn't he? And so could we actually think that the rules he followed would still be relevant today? You know, their beliefs about the world were completely different to us today. They had a completely different understanding. They didn't know, for example, you know, what the sun was. They didn't know what the moon was. No one had been up there in a spaceship. And so in today's world, are those rules that were followed 2,000 years ago still relevant? Now, you can absolutely say yes. But what I want you to do here is to think, actually, could this be outdated? And we'll pick up on this in a second when we talk about sex ethics in particular. But just for now, I want you to think, does there actually need to be one law? Or actually, should law be a little bit more subjective? Because we could say modern life is complex. You know, There is not necessarily one size fits all when it comes to moral decision-making. If you think about the rapid changes of the past 100 years in particular, in terms of women's rights, same-sex marriage, um, technology, you know, the, the big changes that have happened, is it too rigid? Is it now out of date? we could say the primary precepts they're out of date they're too fixed um we still want to do good But we might think of goodness in a different way today because we live in a different context, in a different place. You could also say that goodness means different things in different parts of the world, you know, in different cultures. So it's too fixed geographically as well. We can say it's impractical. It cannot be applied in real life. Making moral decisions requires we consider the situation. So you could say that Joseph Fletcher's situation ethics, if you want to use another Theory to critique this one provides a much more helpful approach to Christian ethics because it's based on the idea that the morality of an action is dependent on the circumstances, that love's decisions are made situationally. If you think, did Jesus go around saying, What are the five primary precepts? No, he did not. He made decisions based on what was the most loving thing to do. He himself broke the laws of the day in order to do the right thing. You know, now, of course, Aquinas actually agrees with that, doesn't he? Because he says only obey the laws if they are just. So, you know, you you do have a bit of pushback there. But I think a strong point would be um, the idea of situation ethics that love is the only universal, because that links in with the idea that natural moral law is um, universally binding, doesn't it? If you've got William Temple, former Archbishop of Canterbury saying, love is the only universal, that suggests to me you don't need five primary precepts that are universally binding. You don't need this absolute unchanging one law. All you need is love. (laughs) Cue the Beatles. (laughs) I'm going to burst into song now hand me a microphone but this is the key point yeah that actually love is the only universal that Christians need to believe in because this theory is too rigid and impractical and kind of building on that is the particular case of sex ethics we could say it is out of date on sexual ethics because of. It's totally behind society. Now, of course, many Christians would say, well, I don't need to keep up with society. You know, I'm going to stay true to my religion. But this could be a barrier to many people um, believing in natural moral law because it's out of touch with what they believe on sexual ethical issues. So we could say or we may say it promotes a rigid traditional understanding of sexuality. That is simply not supported by modern science, modern thinking, for example, the primary precept reproduction has led to a very specific very strict very limited view um, of sex and the condemnation of things such as masturbation, contraception, and homosexual acts. Most Western um, people today, modern Western society, does not see these things as necessarily harmful in themselves, yeah? Although the Catholic Church does maintain its opposition. Um, You know, people, for example, use situation ethics. They say, well, Is it a loving thing? Is harm being caused? John Stuart Mill's harm principle, for example, based on his 1859 book on liberty, is that as long as someone isn't causing harm, then they should be free to do whatever they want in private. Yeah. Um, And so you could say, actually, it's no longer relevant because overpopulation and STIs are an issue. So actually, natural moral law's position that you have a duty to reproduce every time you have sex may be irresponsible. Um, and it may be out of touch again and it may be out of date. The Church of England supports the use of artificial contraception and says um, in the Lambeth Conference that provided it is used in light of Christian principles, it is okay. So essentially, provided that it's in a loving marriage, in a one flesh monogamous marriage, contraception is not problematic. You know, why on earth should a married couple have to keep reproducing? Do you want them to have a 1000 kids, Aquinas? Are you going to pay for their school uniform? Do you know what I mean? Like, you've got to think about this in terms of, is it relevant today? Is it practical today? And actually, is it necessary today? What harm is a condom causing Aquinas? That's what I want to ask him. Yeah. And he would say, because it's separating sex from reproduction. But then I would say, think about your modern, even Catholics today, you know, do they believe that there is solely one purpose for sex. The Catholic Church, for example, actually now says that sex is for procreation, but also it's for unity. It's about becoming one flesh physically, so to speak. Um, and so is it, you know, being too rigid? Is it being too strict on what the telos of sex is? You know, do we not need to evolve and update, especially in light of modern science, which is saying homosexuality is it's natural and normal as part of a diverse population? Um, the Methodist Church allows same-sex marriages, which are now legal in the UK. Again, Aquinas would say, don't worry about what the law says, use your reason. But what if you then use your reason to think actually they're not causing harm? They're in a loving relationship. You know, they're committed to one another. It makes them happy. They are fulfilling their potential. They're good people. My reason is telling me there's no reason to condemn them just because having sex doesn't mean they have kids. Um, you know. So again, it's outdated on sex ethics, it's too limited. Um, And then Podgman says that actually, and this is kind of like what I just said, we have many purposes. Heterosexuality may serve one social purpose, whereas homosexuality serves another. And both may be fulfilling for different types of individuals. And that's important to recognize diversity, that telos means different things to different people. And so being in a same sex relationship may be fulfilling for one person, being in a heterosexual relationship is fulfilling for another. Um, And so you could say, we need to move with the times because it's outdated, not just on homosexuality, but also on things like contraception and masturbation as well. You know, where attitudes have changed in society, shall we say, since the days of Aquinas. OK, one final weakness for you. This is a little bit of a higher level one. It's something you will probably have spoken about um, with meta ethics, I want to say, and it is the naturalistic fallacy. It's the idea that something being natural doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. This is significant because natural moral law is, of course, all about doing good and avoiding evil. Now, the naturalistic fallacy is from a man called G.E. Moore, and a fallacy is a flaw in an argument. The fallacy of composition, for example, criticizes the cosmological argument, saying what is true of the part is not necessarily true of the whole. Now, the naturalistic fallacy is the mistake of assuming that just because something is natural whatever that word means it must therefore be good okay so just because something comes naturally that doesn't necessarily mean that it is good or the right thing to do john Stuart mill for example based on his observation of nature so literally what is natural in the natural world was that nature is very cruel that nature kills he said all the crimes for which men are hanged are nature's everyday performances And so something being natural doesn't necessarily make it moral, because if humans were doing the things that we see in nature, we see animals do in nature, we would prosecute them, we would lock them up, we might even sentence them to death. And so clearly, our legal system um, is very different in terms of what it sees as good to what happens in nature on a daily basis. Um, And of course, if you think about your states of nature argument, some philosophers argue that the human state of nature is actually to be selfish and cruel and so that we actually have to discipline ourselves. Kant said for example man must I can't speak excuse me man must be disciplined for by nature he is raw and wild yeah so he was saying that actually we have to discipline ourselves because if we just did what is natural we would be raw and wild Um, and you know he He really believed in that. And he then lived his life very strictly. You know, he he stuck to a schedule where he got up at the same time every day. He ate, he went for a walk. Everything was done by the clock. Um, Indeed, the people where he lived saw him as more reliable than the clock because of how rigid his routine was. Because he believed you've got to discipline yourself because actually what comes naturally to you is not what is good for you. And that links, doesn't it, to the naturalistic fallacy that something being natural doesn't necessarily mean it is good and i think that's a nice thing to sort of leave us on today actually is something to think about um before we all go and have a lie down now nope. Before I do leave you in peace, I hope that video has been helpful for you. I do need to mention for you that the two other sections, so uh, Doctrine of Double Effect and Proportionalism are also on this playlist. So do make sure you watch those videos as well. So you've got a complete understanding of this topic. Um, And you can then get the full PowerPoint covering absolutely everything through the link in the description box below. So yeah, do head over there, have a look at those videos, have a look at the PowerPoint as well. Um, If you've got anything to add, any thoughts of your own, any feedback, any um, other critical comments about the different philosophers, you know, you wanna give your evaluation, give us your conclusion, please, Let me know down in the comments. But yes, thank you so much for watching. It's a pleasure to have your company. And yeah, very good luck with all your studies. I do hope everything's going well for you. Take care, have a good day, and I'll see you very soon. Bye-bye.